And we have been stressing the fact that all these things come from Karl Barth uh, accepting the dichotomy and the fact that in the area of uh, he has higher critical theories down here, and then in the area where the Bible touches history and where it touches the cosmos is not important, but what is important is some sort of uh, some sort of existential experience up here. Now, when you I won't repeat because spend the whole last hour on this, but there's a couple other things I would like to add that are a result of the acceptance of this dichotomy. And one thing you must understand is that if you cross everything in space-time history out, it's all crossed out down here, that the theologian is left with no explanation for evil. The only possible explanation for evil is a space-time situation, a space-time fall. And without a space-time fall, there is no explanation for evil. And it really must be space-time. There must be a time before the fall. It can't be just a theological concept of a fall. And the, with these men who remove everything out of the downstairs rock, out of the downstairs realm, there just is no place for a space-time fall. It doesn't exist. And the uh, same thing would be true, I would say, Again, I'm intrigued by the way the evangelicals are drifting some of them into this field. Uh, and it seems to me that one of the first things that you begin to feel is the dilemma of the, uh, of the weakening of the space-time fall, and therefore the weakening of an answer for evil, evil in the world. That evil in the world is not normal. And because if you're left in the situation where evil, where you have a problem, where you begin to throw away the answer as to why evil is abnormal by crossing this out, then, of course, you are left with another blind step of faith. And that is that you're left with a blind step of faith that God is a good God. God is a good God. Because if you say, if you have no real, if you weaken it, you need neo-Orthodox, sorry, neo-Orthodox does uh, the downstairs area, and you have no area for, uh, for explanation for evil, you're left with this horrible situation of what do you do about God? Then how can God be good? And one of you came up after the uh, the lecture this morning and uh, quoted Baudelaire. And you are left with Baudelaire's dilemma. And that is, if there's a God, he's the devil. And I don't think neo-orthodoxy has any solution for this whatsoever. We have a solution because we do believe in a significant man, in a significant history, in a space-time fall, in which you now have an abnormal situation, which is not the way God made it. But as soon as you begin, as soon as you begin, you start things, everything out of the historic space-time realm, and you put everything up here in the upper story experiential realm, as soon as you do this, you are left with this dilemma of then, what is the answer, what is the, re, uh, what is the explanation of evil? And God becomes, uh, this becomes another faith act in the bad sense of faith, of God is a good God. I think all these things follow absolutely certainly after uh, the, uh, the acceptance of the dichotomy. As soon as you accept the dichotomy as your central way of looking at things in, in regard to religious things over here, uh, after Karl Barth, all these things just fall along. As two follows one, and the three follows two, and four follows three, so these things <coughs> fall along. It's one dilemma added constantly to another dilemma. Now I think that this also then brings with it, the uh, carries with it another thing, uh, and that is that you have... Uh, you have a tendency for a weakening of morals. 
The Bible, the Bible, religious things, not the Bible so much, but religious things are, are, are up here in, the, in this area. And therefore, that which lives down here in the area of history becomes weaker. And that includes moral. And one thing that disturbs me is I come back to my own country and am in touch with it many, many times, of course, with people coming to us, is the way that it seems to me that the evangelicals who have been playing games with the first half of Genesis are, I think, then naturally becoming weak in the areas of morals. So you would have on the West Coast, for example, in those that would be in this general theological setting, you find that divorce uh, for any ground is accepted. And this is becoming more and more and more common. Uh, groups in, in various parts of the country, but California, you can feel it very strongly, it seems to me, uh, that those who have accepted uh, the the uh, the evangelical formulations for this and have weakened the scriptures in the historic portions of the first half of Genesis, you find that there's a weakening in, in, the, in the moral fiber. And no wonder, you see, because religion is something else. Religion is up here. It cuts the line between religion, which is up here, and the things that are down here in the space-time world. It cuts the reality of the fact that we must be struggling for, as I see it, and that is Christ's lordship. Christ's lordship over everything else, or over everything, I'm sorry. Christ's lordship over the whole of life. But if you accept really this dichotomy in an absolutely watertight way, then, then the lordship of Christ is always up here in the religious realm. And they have it's cut from down here in the historic realm. So in the area of morals, in the area of our responsibility, uh, I feel these things are, are always... Or there's a tendency as soon as you begin to accept the dichotomy to have all these things solved. Now we could go on lecture for a long time on this, but I don't want to take too long. Let us come back now. Let us come back then to where we were before. And that is uh, that is the general the general line as it follows along in the various disciplines. And this new way of thinking has spread, as I've emphasized now uh, for two days. Uh, through the various disciplines. It begins with philosophy, it goes on to art, it goes on to music, it goes on to general culture, and then it came to theology. And I spent a lot of time on the theological aspects because that's the area where the battles that you're going to fight come perhaps to their uh, highest fever and highest pitch. Although if I was lecturing in another circle, I would always mention the theological aspects. I never mention any of this, incidentally, no matter what university I'm lecturing in, that I don't mention Karl Barth and theological existentialism. I feel that I would be betraying our position if I didn't mention it, but I don't always spend as much time on it comparatively as I have uh, now. Now, however, we must see that the, this new way of thinking of things, of thinking of things in the area of the dichotomy, uh, spread not only by disciplines, but spread in two, two other ways. And that is, the first is it spread geographically. So it began in Germany, and then gradually spread across the continent. Switzerland was affected very, very early. England was affected much later, actually. It took some time for this new way of thinking to jump the channel. And then America was affected much, much later again. And it was affected much later again in, in every area, but <clears throat> especially in the earlier days. Uh, the art, for example, was very much in ferment. This new way of painting and so on was very much in ferment in France long before it came to America. And then it speeded up afterwards. So what you have is a, uh, a, a spreading by discipline and then a spreading by geography. 
But I do think to understand something of our problem, and this is all in the context of preaching the gospel to our generation, I do think we also have to understand uh, that as well it was another factor, and that is it is spread by classes, if we want to use the word class. I don't know if that's the right word, but something like this. And that is it started with the intellectuals. And there aren't many intellectuals, real intellectuals. Uh, and then it affected the educated people. And I think it swept them through the mass media around the middle class people. And it has had a very tremendous effect upon those that we would consider um, under the middle class. So I think that what you have, I think the middle the tension today and the middle class tension, the middle class tension is far more than merely economic. I feel that it has something to do with the way people think. Now, we must understand what the middle class is. The middle class is something that is not something to be despised, it is something good. Because it was the Reformation in Northern Europe, I think, that produced the kind of a middle class that we have in Reformation countries. And this was not a bad thing, it was a good thing. But where the bad part of it came in, I feel, is when the middle class thinking became divorced from the foundation, namely Christianity, which had produced it. And therefore, the middle class values became absolute in themselves without being rooted in, in a reason. And, for instance, one would take the work ethic that so many of the young people are kicking against, and which Newsweek constantly refers to as the Puritan work ethic. Uh, the work ethic is something good, and it was produced because there's a reason to work. And Udo Middleman has done a lot of work in this area, and he has a little book coming out soon, which, which he deals with the work ethic and so on. It's very well done, I think going to be, I think, a really good book. And in it, he stresses the fact that there was, a, uh, there was a good reason for the work ethic. But the difficulty is, you see, if you separate the work ethic from the, uh, from the reason, then you're in trouble. And I think that's the truth. That's the difficulty that many children feel with their middle class parents. The middle class parent says, you work, and I'm not just being facetious. And the youngster says, why do I work? Well, so you can go to university. Why should I go to university? Well, so you can earn more money. Why do you want to earn more money? Well, so you can send your children to university. <laughs> and you, you, get a, uh, and you get, a, get a vicious, a vi something very vicious in this. It really is vicious. Really is overwhelmingly vicious. So what you have is not that the middle class values are wrong or the middle class ways of looking at things or assuming truth. But what you have is it has become ugly because it has been separated from the base that, has, that, that uh, gave it birth. And in this, this is right, this, this becomes ugly. It becomes nonsense to talk about work if you're living in a circle in which nothing has meaning and you cannot not formulate any real value. It becomes meaningless. Why bother is a, is a question anybody would ask in this situation. So what you must see then that this, this thinking and the area of the dichotomy has spread now, has spread now by disciplines. It has spread geographically. And then it's spread by classes. But you see, you, you have another problem, and that is that this middle class group that is still thinking in the old terms of a unity of truth, as their children go off to college, then they tend to think the other way, and so there's a constant spin-off from the group. So what you have is a diminishing group thinking the one way and an increasing group thinking the other. And I think this has to do something of preaching the gospel. If we shut ourselves up in our churches, which I hope we never do, to preaching the gospel only to any one group. Now, every church can't reach every group, but, but, but and as an ideal, we shouldn't shut our, an ideal, we must not shut ourselves up to reaching only the middle class group. But if we do, we must realize if evangelicalism becomes aligned only with a middle class group, we are aligning ourselves with a, uh, with a decreasing, uh, decreasing factor.
And I really feel this is something which we have to wrestle with in our evangelical world. Uh, to be thankful for the middle class. To realize that in reality the middle class values will be closer to ours than many of the others. And yet as they're cut loose from any base, they become something which are free-floating and which have no solidity and which can become rapidly equal, uh, ugly. And to realize if we are preaching the gospel only so that the middle class can understand it, and if we allow ourselves as we go into our churches and go into Christian work to be controlled by those who will not allow anything else except this kind of thing, <clears throat> we are automatically shut off from the, great, the greatest group of society. And it would be wrong even if it wasn't the greatest group of society. It's wrong to shut the gospel off from any group of people, whether it's because of color of skin or anything else. It would be wrong to shut ourselves off from any group, but it's, I'm not talking only about the wrongness of us now, uh, but the folly of it, because we're limiting ourselves, if we do limit ourselves this way, to preach to a decreasing group. So I feel, therefore, uh, the understanding of what the modern way of thinking is, the line of, line of despair, you see, I do feel that this is the real generation gap. I feel the real generation gap, the real thing that made 1964 possible at Berkeley, is a different way of looking at truth, a divided way of looking at truth. Or you can say another way, there is no truth. You, you can say it either way. But a divided way of looking at truth, as opposed to previously people thinking in the areas of that there is a true truth. So I feel the real generation gap is epistemological. I don't feel the real generation gap. Uh, I don't feel the real generation gap is merely in the area of lifestyles or any of these things. I think all these things have been produced, rather, uh, by the basic cause. And the basic cause being uh, this different way of looking at the, uh, looking at the matter of, of the world and the universe and the truth. Now, when... Yes? Just a question on this, spreading geographically. Is that still true, or, or has, for instance, the, the recent um, issuing of Last Tango in Paris with Brando and, and that legitimizing that type of film and not being panned in America by the, by the national media, can we still say that uh, <coughs> the continent is ahead of America in this? Oh, not now. No, the, I'm sorry. A long time ago, America caught up. It's even more than this. It's even more than this. You see the modern painting, put in quotation marks, and by that I don't mean painting that's done now, but what I would call modern painting. The center of modern painting for years now has been New York. Paris hasn't been the center for a long time. As a matter of fact, uh, German money, German money pays um, immense amounts to buy American modern art because it's so far out. So I think I, when I'm speaking of it spreading geographically, I was speaking about originally. But New York, New York's art world has been the center of modern art, again in quotation marks, for many, many years. There's been nothing in Europe that has been as, uh, well, that's too strong. But, in, but there's been very little in Europe that has been as far out as modern, as American art for a long time. And after all, the whole, the whole drug thing began in Berkeley, or began in California spread across the world. So, unhappily now, what we are exporting is the most far-out stuff you can get. That's a, that's a good question, if I haven't made that clear. The tragedy is, if you travel over the world, is that what America is exporting is a tragedy. It really is a real tragedy. And we're exporting it in our popular music, we're exporting it, just as you said, in our films, we're exporting it in our textbooks, if we send our textbooks over the world, it's there. 
Um, we our, our news media, such Time and News uh, Newsweek and Time, have a bigger impact than any other magazines in the world, and we export it in these. So, so for a long time now, we have been we have been the, the crucible of it. So we we began to do we began we got into it later, but we what we but even that you see if you take 1913 as the time of your uh, something like this uh, of your army show. Uh, after all, that now is many many years ago. We have made up for lost time. Now, uh, the next thing to see is that as you have this dichotomy, and you have the tension between reason, reason leading to pessimism, and then trying to find optimistic answers in the area of non-reason, that has taken many forms. This upstairs here has taken many forms, but there. But while it's taken many forms, at the same time, uh, there is a um, affinity between these. There is a. Uh, it really doesn't matter, or you can say it another way. It doesn't matter which you put upstairs after you live upstairs, because reason is left behind downstairs, and because reason is left behind downstairs, therefore, what you can put up here, what you can put up here, is really immaterial to reason. So the first things that were put up there, of course, was the existential philosophy. That was the first. And you have Jean-Paul Sartre and Camus in France, and you have Heidegger in Germany, and you have Karl Jaspers in uh, Switzerland, though he was a German, but most people think of him as Swiss because he's worked forever in Basel. Uh, so you have these four, three forms of existentialism. And to go over it very, very rapidly, and much too rapidly, the French existentialism, Jean-Paul Sartre's concept was simply the fact that we live in a, a meaningless world, but while we live in a meaningless world, you can authenticate yourself by an act of the will. This is a basic concept. You live in a meaningless world, but you authenticate yourself by an act of the will. Now, the dilemma, the dilemma of this, however, comes in the fact that because it is free from all reason, it doesn't matter what you do to authenticate yourself by an act of the will. Of course, philosophically, it is, it is meaningless anyway, because if everything is meaningless, then everything within the meaninglessness is meaningless. But nevertheless, in spite of this internal tension, what they tried to do was to authenticate themselves by an act of the will. Therefore, to, to help somebody is a meaningless thing, but you authenticate yourself. But to kill somebody is equally an authentication. And this is why you have such things as the murder on the moors. The murder on the moors was undoubtedly in England was was spawned out of the reading of the uh, of men like Sartre. Because if you have a once you have once you accept this real once you accept this then it doesn't matter it doesn't matter which direction you authenticate yourself. So if you're looking forward to authenticate yourself by an act of the will up here where it has no meaning down here, it's obvious that because there's no reason you can authenticate yourself in either direction. So it becomes a completely amoral situation. Now, actually, this is the place where Sartre got into trouble. Sartre ran into a difficulty here. And Sartre ran into a difficulty at this particular place uh, because he himself being, he didn't know this was the reason, but it's the reason, being made in the image of God, he couldn't live with his own position. So the breakdown in his own position came at two points. And that the first was the great one was the signing the Algerian Manifesto against the Algerian War. And in signing the Algerian Manifesto against the Algerian War, really what he said is, one thing is right. And he destroyed his own position. So uh, at that particular time, I was 
I had a Bible class in, um, well, it wasn't a Bible class, it was a class, discussion class, uh, in, in Lausanne, in an old beaten up student cafe, and I had a lot of followers of Sartre there. And when he signed the Algerian Manifesto the next day of the class, they literally put their heads in their hands. They were, they were absolutely overwhelmed because their high priest had done something which you could not do. You said something was right. Well, what he should have said, what he should have said is that today the Algerian war is a dirty war, but tomorrow it may be a great war. The next day it might be a dirty war, but the next day it could be, a, might be a great war. In other words, there's no reason for saying that it's right and wrong. And when he came down on the side of being opposed to the Algerian war, in reality, he destroyed his own position. And Sartre has never really, I would say, been the, le the leader of the uh, intellectual fact the faction of France since. He destroyed himself. Now, of course, he's gone further in destroying himself in his strong left-wing political politics since. And it's a very curious thing that you feel if you're listening closely, and that is that by, by saying there is such a thing as right and wrong, even if he said the wrong things were right and the wrong things were wrong, in saying that some things are right and wrong, he's closer to the truth than when he was consistent to his own system. And this is a, something, as I stress it in The God Who Is There, it's a very important thing to see. And I think it will always be this way. I feel that it will always be the case. It will always be the case uh, that if here you take a man and his non-Christian presupposition, and here you take the logical conclusion of his non-Christian presupposition, that he will not be able to be consistent. He will not be able to live there. He has to live somewhere along the line here. And the more he is consistent to his presupposition, the more he is away from the real world. The more, the more he is near the real world, make this the real world now, the more he is near the real world, the more inconsistent he comes to his presupposition. And I think this is true with all non-Christian presuppositions, because it is not according to what is. And it's not only according, not according to what is externally in the external world, but it's not according to what is in the internal world of the man's own makeup, as he has been made in the image of God. In other words, I think here in the area you could call it general revelation, to go back to the older types of discussion, what you have is something that God has made so man cannot be comfortable with his rebellion. He cannot be comfortable with his rebellion. And it's that particular place that I think we have our opportunity. We must find out where the man is not comfortable with his rebellion. But let me repeat, because it's really a rather important thing. And that is, the more consistent he is to his presuppositions, his non-Christian presuppositions, the further he will be from the real world. And the more, the closer he is to the real world, the more inconsistent he will be to his presuppositions. And the best illustration of this is Sartre and Camus. But Sartre was more consistent, and he was further away from the real world of humanity. Camus was closer to the real world of humanity, but was less consistent to their common presuppositions. But, however, it must be said, on the other hand, that Sartre couldn't be consistent either. <coughs> so I feel this is, something to, this is something that has a very practical apologetic nature, using apologetics for evangelism and touching men, is that I don't believe anybody can be completely quiet at the point of, uh, with non-Christian presupposition. The, re the very makeup has been made in the image of God, uh, and the fact of living in a universe that has form will not allow them to be <coughs> consistent to their presupposition. And I think compassion, and um, it means taking time to find out where this man is uncomfortable and beginning to talk there on the basis of how we can reach him.
how we can make him look at the other set of presuppositions, namely the Christian one. Anyway, this was started in Camus. The uh, vindication of one's self, the authentication is the right word, of oneself through the act of the will. Uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, um, we find Heidegger being in two stages. And the first stage, when he was a real existentialist, was that there was an, an anxiety in the universe. He uses the German word angst. And he makes very, very plain that this anxiety is not fear. That fear is fear is with an object. But what he said, everybody feels a disquiet in themselves, a general cosmic anxiety. And this indicates that you can hope that something is there, even on the basis of reason it's not being there. But then later Heidegger changed. And later the change is a very important one, because it's in line with the, in the new theology, really. And that is what he said finally was, that what you must do is just listen to the poet. Now, he didn't mean that you would listen to any content of the poet, because that would be down here. That would be downstairs. It's not the content of the poet that, that is involved. But Heidegger simply said, because there is being, uh, small b, namely men in the universe who verbalize, therefore you can hope that being, capital B, big B, has some meaning. So you listen to the poet. But poets, two poets can say opposite things at the same moment, and it doesn't matter. Because though they're saying opposite things at the same moment, it doesn't matter, because after all, they're both using words, and therefore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is very, very nebulous in many ways, as you can feel. But on the other hand, it's had a tremendous, a really tremendous influence. And it's had a tremendous influence against theologians, among theologians again, who would say that after all, in the Old Testament, these men uh, were having existential experience, uh, but they did put them into prophetic words, uh, and uh, not that the words had anything to do necessarily with what the experience really was, but the surrounding culture. But the fact that there were, uh, uh, were the use of words gives us a hope that we can use words. What use them for what? Well, religiously, once more, for an existential experience. And I would say Richardson uh, of uh, England at one special time went through this stage, where all you had was the fact um, that... There were words, and he was following Heidegger at this particular time. So you have now the first existentialism, the first the, uh, the existentialism of the French, the Jean-Paul Sartre, the authenticating yourself by an act of the will. The second thing is that then is Heidegger, and Heidegger's emphasis that you listen to the poet at the end of his life, with the repercussions that made in the theological world. Now the third, the third man was Carl Jaspers, and Carl Jaspers is very, very crucial. Because Carl Jaspers put forth the concept that what we have, what the hope we have is in a final experience. And that's a technical term of Carl Jaspers. A final experience. And you must understand his definition of a final experience. His definition of a final experience is an experience so big that it gives you a hope of meaning even though your mind tells you there is none. And I always emphasize that these people are completely serious. Very, very serious. We must be careful to be equally serious, if not more so, when we know the truth. And he was so serious that he was confronted with the fact of the danger of young people in his class in Basel committing suicide, seeking for a final experience. And that what they would, they thought that death must be an experience big enough to them. And then he warned that suicide wouldn't always give a final experience. So these men were really serious. And one wasn't working with them. One, one comes to love them. For their, uh, for their 
for their, um, I don't know if sincerity is the word, but for something anyway at this point. Did you really come to love them for their, for the fact of how hard they push on these things? Now when, so his concept was that you had the final experience. So what, let's put this here in the upper story. And you have the existential experience. And then you have Carl Jaspers especially with the final experience. And immediately the thing you'll notice is that you have, is that you have a parallel of words. So the, the operative word is experience. And you're seeking for an experience which will give you a meaning even though reason gives you none. And it can be various things, this final experience, though you can never describe what, when it's going to come. It always comes as a surprise. But I had, a, I had one student come to me who said he had a final experience. And uh, I found that he had been in Amsterdam. He was in Dutch. He was a Dutch boy. And he'd been in Amsterdam one night and had seen the play Green Pastures, if you'll remember. Some of you will remember Green Pastures. It's a play in which there is a, it was a, one of the earliest breakthroughs of the black theater, uh, I mean, theater by blacks. A and it was a, uh, a thing in which there was a black god. There was a Negro man who acted as god. And I must say, it had deep emotional overtones. And he had been there that night, and he had had this titanic experience through looking at the play. And so, therefore, he hung his whole life on the experience of that night. That he had an experience so big that night that he hoped it would give him a meaning for, for life. But now, there's an immediate dilemma with this, a double dilemma. The first is that there's nothing you can do to be sure that when it, can, when it will come. It just comes. The second thing is that you cannot necessarily repeat it. It isn't for, it isn't for repetition. So what you're left with is a memory of an experience that grows increasingly dim as the years pass. And my experience has been that the people who are caught in this are really miserable people. And you can understand that. If your mind tells you there's no meaning to life, but you had a tremendous experience at, say, a theater last night, like Green Pastures, and then the next morning you get up, you see, you say, I, have an I had an experience. And that would seem to give you, you see, that's positive. But then by nightfall, the experience is further away. And then the next morning, it is further away. And the next morning, it is further away again. And because you are in the area of non-reason, because you're in the area of non-reason, that you can never put any content into this experience. Never. And that's where we must understand completely. You can never, 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 never put any content in this experience. You can't say, I had the experience because. Because that would bring you downstairs. And now you're in the area of reason. So you can never say, I had the experience because there would be this, which would be true, you see. But you always can only say, I've had an experience. And it had this double limitation. It had the limitation of not being able to produce it when you wanted it and not being able to repeat it. And that, uh, that I believe, really is the explanation of why the next man, when he came forward, had so much tremendous support. And that is Aldous Huxley. And Aldous Huxley said, let's give well people drugs. And that is the real buzz of the hippie movement. Jean-Jacques Rousseau on one side, there's Thomas Freedom, plus drugs from Aldous Huxley on the other. And people were ready to take drugs because now with drugs, you had the promise that you could have the experience on call, and it was repeatable. So what you now have is a drug experience. So you have an existential experience, a final experience, a drug experience, but it's always, always shut up only to the experience. 
And that's all there is. There isn't anything more. Only that. And Aldous Huxley was very, very, Aldous Huxley was very consistent inside, uh, concerning this. He did it himself. He began with various drugs, uh, from cactus in, in, in taken in uh, Mexico, various drugs, mescaline, so on, uh, various kinds. And we had a contact with him directly because we were able to lead to the Lord, a French girl whose father was in a very uh, high place, uh, a pharmaceutical concern in Paris who supplied him with his early drugs. So he really took them. And you read The Brave New World. He wasn't just making fun. He was setting forth a proposition. He was setting forth a proposition. Um, if, if anybody is interested in wondering whether he continued this to the end of his life, the answer is absolutely yes, he continued it to the end of his life. Uh, if you want to read what he wrote toward the end of his life, you must read the last chapter of The Humanist Frame, which is a book which was the editor of which was Julian Huxley. And Julian assigned him the last chapter. And the last chapter was a cry that on the basis of drugs we were going to have an ideological answer. We were going to have an answer to the problems of life. We were going to be able to be able, we were able to go ahead and have, um, and give people answer upon call. Now, in, just a parenthesis here, because for those of you who heard Skinner in the Skinner film, it was an interesting thing because just as Skinner is pushed on the basis of isn't this usable by a totalitarian state uh, and can only give you a hope, uh, just an answer of blind hope that it won't be, it's interesting that in the humanist frame, Aldous Huxley understood that this was where the drug thing, that the drug thing could be used by a totalitarian state too. And he said, well, isn't this usable by a man like Hitler? And he said, his whole emphasis was at the end, well, we just hope it won't be. And so you're left with both Skinner on one hand and Aldous Huxley on the other, with the understanding of what tragedy can lead to, and you give no assurance of any way to be able to guard against the tragedy, you just stand in a vain hope that it won't be used badly. And it's very interesting that Skinner, this is yet just in the parenthesis, Skinner uh, comes to the same position in his positive conditioning as, uh, as Aldous Huxley understood his problem of drugs. In other words, who's going to dispense them, even if, even if he was right? He's wrong, but supposing he was right, even so, who's going to dispense them? So what you had with Aldous Huxley is something new. You had drugs being not taken primarily as an escape, but drugs being taken as an ideological answer to the philosophic problem of man. And at that point, we're now ready for the hippie revolution of 1964. We couldn't have had the hippie revolution in 1964 at Berkeley unless less society had come through the circle up to the point which I've described. It had to be right there. Otherwise, people wouldn't have taken drugs by thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. They were taking them, as I'll show you in a moment, this is ended, or tomorrow, uh, they, they were taking them for a different reason than people had taken drugs before. Previously, people had taken drugs largely for escape. These people took drugs because they believed that they would be able to have, a, in the drug experience, something that they had failed to have in the existential experience and the final experience. And I'd just like to say that back in the early days of 65, 66, when I would go and lecture to places such as Santa Barbara University and I talked to people who were taking drugs, all the bright ones knew that they followed, were following all the toxins. They all understood what they were doing. I'm not being saying every little Tom, Dick, and Harry did, but the, the leaders understood that they were following in the train. And all the Huxley really did continue it with consistency. Because if you remember in The Brave New World, he says that this is the way you can have eternity. 
that because drugs distort time, therefore in a drug trip it's as though you were living forever. And because of this, and this may be amazing to some of you, but because of this, he made his wife promise that when he was dying, that he, she would give him LSD. So he died in the midst of an LSD trip. And he did it deliberately. He did it deliberately. He did it because to him that's the eternity there was. This, this final, this great experience, this drug experience. And the men who picked this up were men like Snyder, Watts, Allen Ginsberg, Tim Leary. They were philosophic drug takers and pushers. Is what they were. They were doing it, believing that they were going to have a completely ideological answer. Now, the difficulty is that that did not go well. The drug thing, as we'll see, came to a place, and I'll tell you when it, it went bad. And we arrived at the place where it went bad. But the next thing that you put up, the next thing that came, was the Eastern religious experience. But don't you see they're all the same? If we can only understand this, we can understand something profound. This experience, 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 experience. And because you are put re reason aside, because you put reason aside, you can move these pieces around at random. And in my escape from reason, I show how, uh, back five, six years ago, how many pieces people were trying to put there. Andrew Malraux tries to put art there, for example, as an example. You can have many other things we could discuss. Many other things that people try to put up there. Art becomes the point of experience. But down here, there is no, uh, Andrew Malraux is an existentialist. And he doesn't believe, he doesn't believe there are answers down here. But he hopes on the basis of art to be able to produce experience. An experience big enough to give a hope of a meaning when your mind tells you there is none. But now the drug, so you have the Eastern religious experience. But you mustn't be surprised that you go, you just keep moving, you see. You keep looking, you keep looking for an ex this experience. Uh, which is going to be big enough and which will be repeatable and so on. So the Eastern, so Aldous Huxley's drug experience was trying to find truth in the inside of your head. And this is really something, again, to lay hold of. The drug thing wasn't to give you truth out there. There is no truth out there that you can know about, if there is any. But what you try to do is to have truth inside of your own head. But now the Eastern religious experience is truth inside of your own head as well. Yes. For example, uh, a program of California called Mind Dynamics teaches you to go and go and yourself to seek truth. Yeah, well, I think it's the same thing. Not yeah, I think this is everywhere. I think, I think after all, there's no place to look except in your own head for truth. When once you've departed from reason, and you, there's no truth out there. I agree with you. I mean, I would say, I would say a great deal of uh, psychological studies today would fall in the same category. It would be exactly the same. I'm not say all of it, but a great deal of it. But anyway, what you come now is that you say you have now you have all these experiences. But don't you see how thoroughly, how thoroughly the uh, the new theology that I've described at such length for the two days, how it fits into this, that what you're left with is only experience? And the Bible, the Bible, the Bible is not true down here, but what you're left with is an experience up here. So in reality, you can see that the new theology is exactly a part of all the rest. There's no distinction. It's just one trip contrasting to another trip. That's all it is. And you're not sure there's any God out there, so what you're trying to do is to find truth inside again. So once more, with the drug experience, with the Eastern religious experience, 
and with a theological thing, with a theological thing, you are left with you are left with um, uh, merely experience, and it is interchangeable. Harrison's disc, "My Sweet Lord," is very important here. When people first heard My Sweet Lord, they thought Harrison must have become a Christian because he's swinging talking about My Sweet Lord. And yet when you listen closely on the, on the disc, he's saying Krishna, 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 Krishna. There's no difference. So you can use, you can use Christian God words, or you can use, use Eastern religious God words, or you can use uh, drug, drug things, but it's all the same. These are united. And as I say, once you give up the reason, you can move these pieces around to total random. Now, this is what I think we must be afraid, we must be careful of, where this morning and yesterday, I stressed the fact that the evangelical must not drift into merely using God words. It must be religious in content. Because if we're not careful, we can make another division up here, and we can have Jesus God words. And it'll be exactly the same, leading to only experience. Remember the sentence I read, I'm not interested about propositions about Jesus, I'm only interested in, um, it wasn't experience, but anyway, I'll use it here, in experience with Jesus. But if you, don't you see that if it's completely isolated from content, it becomes the same. And I think this is the explanation of much of the Jesus movement. Now you must be careful with the Jesus movement. You must be very, very careful with the Jesus movement because it is so broad uh, that the, the, like so many words, it has no meaning. Because it covers things which are opposite. And there are those, happily, in the Jesus movement who are really putting in sufficient content and are producing something good. And I, as an example of this, I would mention Jack Sparks at, in, in uh, San Francisco. I think Jack Sparks is doing a great job. He's doing a great job. He's been to La Brie, he and his wife came, studied there, and so on. And he's back in San Francisco, and I'm really enthused about, I don't mean I agree with everything he says and does. Don't do that with anybody. But but in uh, but in general in general he's doing a great job and people would consider him a part of the Jesus movement because the kids who are with him do not follow the old lifestyle of a promiscuous sexual life or drugs but they do follow the lifestyle of blue jeans beards and long hair so Jack always preaches in blue jeans everywhere he goes to identify identify himself with the youngsters you can like this or not like it but but it doesn't matter what I'm pointing out is that he is he is identifying with this. But he is, as far as the central things of the Christian faith is concerned, they're having real conversions because they're building on real content. And I'm all in favor of Jack Sparks. He's really, he's really doing a great job. But, the but is, is a tragedy, and that is a great deal, I think, of that which is the Jesus movement. In reality, has no content whatsoever. It is purely experience. It is purely experience. And it's just as much as experience as the final experience, it's just as much as experience as the Eastern religious experience or the neo-Orthodox experience, it's just an experience. An experience, and these kids have come along and they've tried the drug experience and it hasn't worked, and they tried the Eastern religious experience and it hasn't worked, and now they try the Jesus experience. And this is a real tragedy where this happens, because now they think they have tried Christianity, and they haven't tried it, and they'll be twice as hard ever to touch again. They'll be twice as hard ever to touch again. We must be very careful at this point. And the uh, and we, we with a just to build an experience to have some sort of experience, get the kids to throw up their hands and throw back their heads. There's nothing unless it's built on a sufficient content. So what we must see, therefore, coming this far, is that uh, it is this situation. It is this situation. Now we're beyond 1964 because 
with the drug thing was 1964. The Eastern religious experience was just beginning in 64, 65, uh, and the Jesus thing has come much later, of course. Yet forgetting, yet thinking for, realizing for a moment that, that this, this here was, is, didn't exist back in 64, forgetting that. All these other things were present in 1964, and I think that they are the reason that in 1964 you had your explosion. So now I have come through in my lectures uh, where I wanted to start, and that is the fact that there were two roots. There were two roots to the uh, to the 1964 revolution, and the one was philosophic and the other was scientific, and I dealt with both of them. But I don't believe you can understand what caused the revolution in 1964, and I don't believe we can really preach the gospel to this kind of people unless we have some small comprehension of exactly where they're sitting. And we must be careful, 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 careful not to use evangelical, not to use evangelical words, uh, evangelical words up here, as, uh, as just words. And only this here. And that's the thing I agree with. When you, when you work with people, whether the old kind of middle class people, whether you work with people who are kids, it doesn't matter who you work with, we are called upon very firmly to be men of content, men and women of content. And if we're not giving the content without meaning to, we're falling exactly into this track. Yeah. Now, uh, this brings us to the revolution, and I'll talk about it a bit further, uh, the Lord willing, beginning tomorrow.